G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Many thanks for listening, <clears throat> and make sure that you hit the subscribe button on your fruit-based device so you make sure you get the la- latest RVC Clinical Pod. We would greatly appreciate a moment of your time to go to iTunes and give us a review. Five stars would be um, great. Um, obviously, if you want to give uh, less stars than that, we, we ask you to put that to a different podcast. So if you have any topics you would like us to discuss or comment suggestions for the show, please tweet me at Don Barfield or email me at dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk. Today we're lucky, uh, very lucky indeed, to speak to (laughs) Dr. Tom Cardi. He's one of our staff clinicians in neurology and neurosurgery here at the RVC. He's been a previous student, intern and resident here at the RVC. And actually, uh, um, Tom has a, a, a wide variety of, of interests and, and obviously previous life experiences as well that include dolphin training, which mm-hmm. I, I, I find uh, make, makes him one of the most uh, interesting people to, to actually have a, any conversation with at the, at the RVC. Um, Tom's interested in all forms of neurology, but, but also about helping us understand um, how, how to how to teach uh, neurology to our under, undergraduates um, and this uh, this sort of brings us to what we're going to talk to talk to Tom today about is is the what <clears throat> sorry what are what our uh, students get taught is the the six finger rule but you actually uh, managed to, or you actually published this about their clinical reasoning in canine spinal disease and what combination of clinical information is useful that was published uh, I believe like last year in the in the veterinary record, um, and it's you know an amazing like achievement not, not only to um, help our students understand clinical reasoning in neurology, which I think is fundamentally quite frightening to um, not only undergraduate students but vets in in general. Uh, I think it's it's kind of like maybe maths you know maybe get people get it or they don't get it and they and if they're frightened of it they they, they push it away but i think it's a a very understandable and logical uh, logical approach that you've come up with do, do you want do you want to letting us know why you why you did this? why did you do all this why terrible do do work this? That's amazing. So, so i guess the starting point is very much like the one you've described if it's if it's friday night you're on your own in a practice and an owner carries or wheels or pulls um a dog with some evidence of of spinal disease so it's either not using its back legs properly or not at all we found that that for students and indeed anyone in first opinion practice is actually a very daunting and scary prospect. The first thing that most students do we found when confronted by this situation is actually reach for the forceps, reach for the plexometer, begin pulling limbs and um, testing reflexes. Well, in actual fact, in order for them to establish a focused list of differential diagnoses and better inform sort of diagnostic pathways and treatment decisions, there's a whole load of very simple questions they can ask um, and pieces of information they can get from the history and presentation that means actually much of this they don't have to do. It makes their life much, much, much easier. So it's more of a, a applied clinical reasoning? It's absolutely applied clinical reasoning. It gives them a logical and reasonably formulaic approach to um, a dog with spinal disease. And Professor Church and other members of the college are like, well, you know, that's just pattern spotting, that's pattern recognition. But what I've tried to do with this paper is gather enough information, enough cases to provide an evidence base to support this this pattern recognition. What I'm trying to do is bottle up sort of 10, 20 years of experience and put it into this little uh, sort of approach. 
I suppose we could probably talk about the difference between pattern recognition and canonical nope, don't reasoning. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it. For for, uh, um, for 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 a long time, but but I think that this this uh, approach it, it it's it's kind of you're trying to trying to break it down, aren't you? Yep. Trying to trying to break down um, the animals that present to more of a manageable bite-sized pieces, and I, I suppose what that probably does in, in a way is uh, is, is trying to put away people's fear. Um, in general, you know, I, I can manage this. Like, a, you know, I was uh, told once um, when I was uh, <laughs> doing, a, doing a, a long distance race, you know, you can eat an elephant, but just one meal at a time. And it's probably one of these things that's so daunting a prospect, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, that you think actually, um, how, how do we how do we manage this? And, and you don't have to be frightened. You can just let's break it down. Yeah. And so that that's what you what you've done. So if we look at if we look at the steps individually, I guess the first one is the signalment of the animal. Um, you need to take into consideration whether it's young, whether it's old, um, whether it's a small breed, whether it's a large breed, or indeed whether it's a particular type of breed. Is it brachycephalic or chondrodystrophic? I mean, a perfect example is if I have a 10-year-old, slightly doddery um, Labrador or Labrador cross that's come in with spinal disease, that animal is far more likely to have a degenerative or neoplastic condition than, say, the 4-year-old mini dachshund which is far more likely to have uh, you know intervertebral disc disease or, or, or less likely some sort of trauma so a simple consideration of, of of just the signalment immediately gets you one step further down the line okay um and uh, and then what's the well, what's the next step for you? let's keep going so the next one is the onset of the condition and and this is an amazingly useful question to ask the owner Again, it comes back to, to fairly simple parameters. There are only two conditions which have a per-acute onset. And by per-acute, I mean your dog will be running in the park, uh, a slight scream, and then immediately has no use of, of the pelvic limbs. And those two conditions tend to either be a, a, a fibrocartilaginous embolism or something called a, an acute non-compressive nucleus pulposus extrusion. And all of these horrible neurology terms are made up of acronyms. But what you need to know is that generally, if it is per-acute, that is a, a non-surgical condition and actually covers a pretty favourable prognosis. Now we compare that again to our older dog that for the last two months has been slowly going off its legs um, or has been slowly struggling to get up and down the stairs or in and out of the car. That's not likely to be a disc, that's not likely to be a stroke-like event. That's very often likely to be a tumour that's gradually pressing on the spinal cord or some sort of degenerative um, condition that again is causing spinal cord compression. So the first two are signalment, an onset, and then it's on to progression. Okay, so what, what do you, what do you, how do you differentiate progression? Then? You're going to make me go through all six, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep going. You've got the formula. So we, Yeah, I wrote the formula, we may as well do it. Um, so progression, very, very straightforward. There are only a couple of conditions that, that aren't progressive. And uh, similar to onset, they tend to be this fibrocartilaginous embolism or stroke-like event or this acute non-compressive nucleus pulposus extrusion. With these two conditions, after that per-acute onset, you'll find that the animal begins to improve within 6 to 24 hours. If it doesn't, you know something else is uh, going on. 
Similarly, if we take an intervertebral disc, a cancer, uh, some sort of lumbar sacral disease, uh, an inflammatory or infectious process, these aren't conditions that are going to improve of their own accord. They're going to need some sort of intervention um, and they tend to be slowly or rapidly progressive. So it's a, ve a very straightforward way of, of beginning to put these differential diagnoses into sort of different piles. So, you, so the progression is, is, is more at time of, of when they actually present? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, so still we're talking about a snapshot in time rather than letting them see what they do when they actually come in? Yeah. But remember, at this point, you're three questions in. You've done signalment, onset, progression. You haven't yet touched the animal. You haven't yet had to touch the animal. All you're doing is get a very accurate um, and targeted history from the owner in order to, to help guide your decision making. So at this point, can we do a neurological exam? Let's touch the animal. Um, so, well, in, in fact, in fact, yeah, go on. Let's let's have a look at the the animal itself. The next um, point in this decision making tree is is symmetry or lateralization. Um, neurological conditions are, are, are very unique in that because they can often interrupt vascular supply or interrupt nerves um, or spinal cord on one side, they can be lateralized in in certain situations. And by lateralize, I mean, for example, the spinal reflexes might be absent on the, on the uh, pelvic limb. Um, the pelvic limb on the left side might be completely dysfunctional. Or when the animal walks, you might find it has a, a, an ataxia or a paresis, which is more notable on one side. Now, when we talk about lateralization, I, I, I'm not talking about you noticing a subtle difference between the left and right side. I'm talking about severe and obvious differences. And diseases that can cause this obvious asymmetry are our two favourites, the fibrocartilaginous embolism and the acute non-compressive nucleus pulposus extrusion. The reason being is that if you think about um, blood supply and... Um, uh, vascular supply to the spinal cord, it has these very neat branches that arise from the midline and go out to supply the cord itself. If one of those is obstructed or disrupted, it's clearly going to cause a, a, a lateralized neurological deficit. That's that's uh, very very informative, <laughs> and it's the first time you've touched an animal, which uh, yeah, which is which so it's, is it's great which for is a Friday night. <laughs> and it's and you can see though, it's not rocket science. All we're doing is is asking three or four simple questions. But I tr do this with the students and immediately they begin to understand that this allows them to put these differential diagnoses um, um, into these old buckets and it begins to really help their sort of decision making. That's really good. That's really good. So you, you move on then your... Uh, your pain, 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 Dom. So always leave pain till last. Um, animals have a tendency to bite once you start poking and prodding um, the sore bits. Um, this... This again, it's it's brutally obvious, and and nothing that we've talked about so far is is really overly complex. Certain conditions are, are painful. Um, I mean, I'm now creeping on in years. Uh, I have I have a bad back, and I know that a disc protrusion or extrusion is extremely painful. Uh, similarly, a a neoplasm or an infectious process, anything that's going to cause secondary changes to the tissues surrounding the spinal cord or an inflammatory cascade is going to be painful. Things that aren't painful or aren't painful after the first 
three or four hours um, are our two favourite culprits. They are the, the fibrocartilaginous cartilaginous embolism and this acute non-compressive nucleus pulposus extrusion because those guys tend to damage the spinal cord and as you know uh, the spinal cord is not equipped with nociceptors itself. The one thing I would add to this is that we need to remember that certain degenerative conditions, a degenerative myelopathy in, in older large breed dogs um, will obviously be non-painful because it's just causing dysfunction of the, the axons and um, myelin in the spinal cord. Was, was of, 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 I know we haven't actually sort of completed your, your rule of six, but was this one harder to um, put, a, put a number on or get differentiation? It's a bit it's a bit harder because many of these sort of paracute presentations the owners will often hear the animal yelp or cry out and that gives a perception of pain and indeed I'm sure that if I have a small stroke like event in my spinal cord at that time absolutely because of occlusion of the artery it will be painful but by the time that dog comes to see me two three hours later and I'm palpating firmly along the vertebral column I very rarely will get sort of uh, pain pain detected. And and we're talking about quite of a binary, is there pain, is there no pain? We're not trying to use any scoring system or, or anything more complicated than, nope. than that. It's just binary. And and I think the benefit of this system is it, it's kind of cumulative. So by the time you got through signalment, onset, progression, symmetry and pain, you really are starting to build up a, a, a very nice picture of what, what condition the dog can potentially have and when we get to the end we will potentially go through a couple of examples so so what is our, our last uh, rule of six the last one is the one when you can start to get the hammers and forceps and fingertips out and start really trying to establish a neuroanatomical localization and i guess this 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 sort of speaks for itself Certain diseases will only occur in certain regions of the spinal cord. For example, a, a lumbar sacral stenosis, obviously, is only going to um, occur down at the lumbar sacral joint. A cervical spondylomyelopathy is only going to involve C1 to C5 or C6 to T2 segments. We also know that things like uh, the stroke-like event, uh, disc extrusions, and our acute non-compressive nucleus pulposus extrusion, which I still hate saying because it wears me out by the time I get to the end, um, all of these occur in the sort of thoracolumbar region. So if you do take your time to neuroanatomically localise, you are going to help again to try and narrow down which potential spinal diseases the dog has. And when you're going through this with with students in in general, what what is the what is the the pinch points? What are the difficult errors they actually find in in using this process? Um, do you know what? Actually, if you put them in a room and you get one team to just try and determine a list of differentials without this and another team using this, you'll find that the team that uses this actually comes up with a better list, and this. There's no real sticking point. I mean, you can put them on a post-it note on the computer next to your consultation room. Um, I, believe it or not, have a photoshopped hand on the board outside the neurology ward where people can actually look at it. But providing you stick to this framework is pretty straightforward. I mean, I, I, we came up with it, so it can't be too complex. 
Um, and have you have you had any feedback? Have you tried to improve this this formula? And and also, have we ever looked at it prospectively? Are we are we looking at it? And and you, you talk about uh, putting students in a room with this rule and without that rule. Have, have we are we looking into to studies to show that it works? No, and we should um, because if we could, I mean, it was a, a, a quite a significant step to publish it. Um, and I think after that, we all sat back and congratulated ourselves. But actually, um, the more useful thing is to try and look at prospective studies and see, is this actually improving um, the teaching of our students? And it's it's not also not just the students that are coming through the rotations now. I strongly believe that those people in practice, if they apply this to neurological cases, it, it must improve decision making. It, it and, and that's to. really what it what it's all about, isn't it? It's yeah. giving giving you the confidence um, to say the, the, this is that these are the potential differential diagnoses for for this condition, and in more of a more of a logical um, breakdown. And I'd probably disagree of those that say it's pattern recognition because actually what you're trying to do is break down steps and trying to have more of a, a binary answer to do that. And yeah. I, I think a number of uh, different clinical presentations we actually have that that approach we might you know we, i think there's different ways of talking about the you, same thing you do it every day so your approach to a vomiting dog your approach to a dog with dyspnea um the weak dog something with you know stifle pain everyone has an algorithm that they subconsciously use and all i'm trying to do is put it out there consciously and put some statistics to it and show you that it actually can help you um, either to come up with a diagnostic plan, a treatment plan, or make a decision for referral. And do do you think that um, have you have you thought about trying to to use this as an approach in uh, postgraduate education? Have you have you or do, do the neurology team do that with postgraduate uh, education about the you know, going back to the basics and. In terms of CPD or yeah. this, um, I know that, that members of our team, when they do CPD, certainly um, use this approach. Um, Holger has always sort of informally taught this approach, as did Patrick. Um, what we're trying to do here is, I think, make sure that every team member and every student that has graduated from us for the last sort of two years is using a consistent um, a consistent approach to these diseases and now when people phone you up to make referrals they'll very often begin they they, they give you this um, quick list of the signalment the onset the progression the symmetry the pain and finally the neuroanatomical localization and that's a common language that actually we all now use and it enables us to to help them with their referrals much better yeah, I, I think it's just a, a win-win situation, Tom, and, and uh, quite quite remarkable um, for 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 different aspects. Not only not only the, the 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 teaching side of it, but to break down complicated things into ways to 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 to, to explain it. So that we still have a, uh, a you know a couple of the complicated names for the uh, for the conditions. That, for the terms, uh, <laughs> abbreviate everything. <laughs> yeah, abbreviate everything. So is there, so if there's nothing you'd necessarily want to want to add, um, do do you think this could be applied to other uh, neurological conditions rather than spinal cord conditions it can i mean the the easiest extension of the work is actually to look at this in cats um, cats also get spinal diseases and very often the cat is treated as a small furry bag and just shipped off 
to us without any sort of thought about what conditions it has. But a similar data set is showing that you can use uh, the same sort of six finger rule to, to narrow down differentials in that area. Um, so we definitely try and do that. You can also use a similar approach, which I suspect I should put some effort into with neuromuscular diseases. Um, a, a similar type of thing there, and we're going to try and sort of formalise that too. Well, that that sounds uh, that sounds pretty pretty outstanding. I, I look forward to uh, to reading sort of further things uh, that that you're you're looking at um, with regard to um, helping us understand better and help diagnose these patients uh, patients better in in general. And uh, you have a have a have a great voice, and you probably should have been on the BBC as well. In fact, you you, you might have been at a certain period of time. I, I <laughs> but pre-dolphin, pre-dolphin, absolutely. But before you go, uh, maybe you could uh, you could test this out on on me to see if I can actually come up with uh, with sensible differentials for for a, for a couple of uh, couple of cases. Okay. I'm not sure I should accept this uh, challenge. I'm I'm slightly nervous that a diplomat-level emergency clinician is going to let me down on the radio or whatever it is. Okay, so we'll do two examples. Um, I will try and make these reasonably straightforward, but what this should emphasise to you is that by taking into account these six variables of signalment, onset, progression, symmetry, pain, and neuroanatomical localization even an emergency and critical care clinician can come up with a targeted list of differentials. I hope to not let you down. I'm nervous. So we have a four, let's say he's a four-year male-neutered uh, whippet called Bobby. Uh, he is out running at high speed in the field. When all of a sudden he cries out, he drops to the floor and he is seen to be paraplegic. The owner believes he has no movement in his pelvic limbs. By the time he arrives to my um, practice, um, he's beginning to get some voluntary movement in his right leg. Uh, his left pelvic limb still has no observable movement, but he has good nociception. When I examine him, I localise him to a T3-L3 myelopathy, which is markedly lateralised to the left, and I find him to be no non-painful. So just to recap, signalman, four-year-old whippet. Absolutely. Yeah? We've got a point one. Onset. Paracute. Paracute, very good. Progression. Uh, might be improving. Don't sit on the fence, Dom. <laughs> it improving. It's improving. Symmetry. Asymmetrical. Yeah, absolutely. Markedly lateralised. And painful. Uh, apart from the acute thing, as you, as you mentioned before. Yep. No. Absolutely. And it's neuroanatomical localization, which I'll do for you because I was the one that poked and prodded it, is a T3L3 myelopathy. So now if I turn to you and said, having gone through the history, the presentation and the, the neurological and physical examination to try and get you to provide me with maybe one or two differential diagnoses, um, let's see how we go. So... I would think because of because of that. Don't sit on the fence. <laughs> a fibrocartilage embolism. Yep, is a is an absolutely one of the top two differentials. And then the uh, a um, n p p e, an acute <laughs> non-compressive nucleus pulposus extrusion. So absolutely, I can those, say it better myself. <laughs> those are the two most common. 
um, lateralized, non-painful, non-progressive T3, L3 myelopathies. Now, probably less likely, but just for my own peace of mind, I'd also probably have an intervertebral disc extrusion and less likely trauma on the list. But, but these are way below the list of the first two that you mentioned. Now, the benefit of doing this is that, that if you're confident in that sort of diagnosis, and, and you should be, you know that these conditions are actually non-surgical conditions and providing the animal has no susception, um, it, it should have a pretty good recovery with supportive care. This, in turn, guides your decision. For example, if your client doesn't have funds or isn't insured, these aren't animals to euthanize on the spot. Um, these are animals to um, nurse and rehabilitate over the next 48 hours and see how they progress, because in many, indeed the majority of cases, you should see some pretty good outcomes. Okay? That's good. That's good. So that's one out of one. One out of one. <clears throat> Not bad. Quit while we're ahead? Or? Uh, no, no. We'll do one more to okay. finish. Um, so let's think. This is an 11-year-old crossbreed. She's a sort of rotty Labrador cross, and she's called Tessa. Uh, she is entire. And in the last three months, she's had gait abnormalities affecting her pelvic limbs. Um, in the last two weeks or so, um, it's noticed that she's become mildly urinarily incontinent and her tail tone has reduced. Um, when I see her, um, she is painful in the lumbar sacral area and she localises to an L4-S3 myelopathy. Okay? So let's recap the six-finger rule. Signalman, an 11-year-old uh, female crossbreed um, called Tessa, onset... So it's going on for, for um, say, chronic? Yeah, so it's fairly insidious, chronic onset. It's progression. Uh, it's getting worse? Yeah, absolutely, this lady is getting worse. Uh, asymmetry, have I noticed that in the neurological exam? You haven't said, so I'd say it's... I, uh, I didn't know, any. sorry for not pointing that out. And pain. Present. Yeah. And it's probably poor, getting worse. Yeah, this poor old girl is painful. She certainly responds to focal palpation in the lumbar sacral area. And neuroanatomical localization for me to finish up is the L4-S3 spinal cord segments. So, nothing complex, just see if you can give a couple of differential diagnoses. So, so I suppose because of the progressive nature and it being painful, uh, I think I'd, I'd put a, a, a disc, a lumbar sacral yep, disc protrusion. very good. Um, I think because of the dog's age, size, breed combination, the, the pain, the um, the symmetry and the progression i think lumbar sacral disc or indeed the whole sort of spectrum of lumbar sacral disease a lumbar sacral um stenosis is certainly um one of the top couple of differentials um and i'd, I'd put neoplasia oh you old meanie <laughs> um but absolutely so the second differential we'd we'd have is is a neoplasm on this list Less likely things are degenerative conditions, but invariably they're non-painful. You can get intervertebral disc extrusions, but the progression and the chronicity of this condition I'm not sure fits. So in this situation, I, I absolutely would say uh, lumbar sacral disease or a neoplasm at the top of my differential list. And, and in this situation, because it's progressive, perhaps this is a case that you'd want to refer. You can try medical management or you indeed can try um, taking radiographs to provide another layer of um, diagnostic information. But I think 
already just by understanding that you have a, a focused list of differentials certainly helps you in the management of this case. Um, I, I think it does, and I think that if I can do it, then uh, then maybe we should try and uh, um, you know maybe anyone can do it. That's, they, uh, anyone can do it. That's <laughs> two out of two. So quit, quit now. <laughs> I'll definitely quit. So, so once again, many, many thanks uh, for your time to get today, Tom, um, and thank you to everyone for subscribing. Please uh, don't forget to tell your friends, and um, preferably those in the veterinary field. And it'd be great if you could take a couple of minutes and leave us a review on iTunes. So we'll place the show notes and the link to Tom's paper on the RVC pages. So just type in RVC and clinical podcasting into the search engine, um, and it should be the top uh, top hit. So until next time, um, many thanks. Bye.